This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Teacher shortages have been around for decades, but new research shows it's getting worse. What impact does that have on kids and classrooms? Plus, the dangerous lives teenage boys often lead have some psychologists worried, but our teachers say we're doing a disservice to both boys and girls. And sarcasm. Teachers are told never to use it, but it can be so funny and even useful. We'll explain those topics and kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. And I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Jamie Myers, what do you teach? I teach eighth grade applications, which is kind of a writing class. Uh, Thank you for being here. Mm -hmm. Rebecca McIntosh, what do you teach? I teach students at an alternative school. I'm the elementary teacher. Rebecca, thank you for being here. Thank you. And Bakari Okuu, you have uh, moved on to a different position in education. I think I say this every time. Yeah, I'm like, it's been two years now. So, um, But I'm a middle school vice principal. And used to be in the classroom. I'm a middle school vice principal. Uh, Jamie, Rebecca, and Bakari are all teachers in the Kansas City area. We should say in the Kansas City area where spring has finally sprung. Right as we're taping this, it's a beautiful, sunny, 75-degree day outside. Very different from some past taping episodes that we've had where it's been sub-zero temperatures, ice cold, but glad that that's happened. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode and also is a review of some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox, so sign up for the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. A new report from the left-leaning Economic Policy Institute minces no words. Here's the report's first sentence. Quote, the teacher shortage is real, large, growing, and worse than we thought, end quote. Exact numbers are notoriously hard to come by, but by some estimates, there are at least 110,000 fewer teachers than are needed in American public schools right now, and that number has been steadily growing and projects to grow even further in coming years. We've heard about state-by-state or subject-area shortages, especially in math and science, for decades. And one major policy response by schools and districts has been to try and make it easier for people who don't have a degree in education to enter the profession, so-called alternative certification. But that, argues this new report, is part of the problem. The authors point out that the proportions of teachers who lack full certification, who have no education training background, and who have less than five years' experience in the classroom have all been increasing over the past decade. Those benchmarks are important because those are used by the U.S. Department of Education to determine who is highly qualified as a teacher. So not only does America have a general teacher shortage, but also has a growing shortage of qualified teachers, again, according to this report from the Economic Policy Institute. Let's dive right in. The numbers on a teacher shortage are often abstract and vague in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, but I guess just for the the educators here today, what does a teacher shortage look like in your schools? What is your experience of a teacher shortage? How have you seen it play out? 
Well, I think in my experience, it leads to this regular rollover, the turnover you have every year of these huge groups of teachers retiring and then those positions having to be filled. So you have large groups of new teachers coming into your staff. Um, and it's this constant churn of new people, new people, new people that can be really unsettling for a building and for, for a student Why body. is it unsettling? Because the routines and the, the traditions you set up, the, the, uh, the things you establish as a building culture have to be retaught and retaught. And you lose the, the continuity from year to year. You know, relationships with kids have to be rebuilt and restarted. Um, and, and it just it, – this constant renewal, which is positive. You want these new ideas. You want that to be happening. But it's hard to establish from year to year if you're constantly having to, to backfill and, and teach those new people coming on. Um, right, and just the funds that you spend on professional development, the orientation process. So it definitely um, weighs on a school and, and a district. I would say for me, though, um, teacher shortage looks a little bit different. It's a matter of having substitutes in classrooms, that you have those long-term subs who are not necessarily fully certified in that content, um, who are not nearly as invested as a full teacher of record would be. Um, and you may have in, uh, subs coming in and out of a classroom. Um, and so we see that we just... For, that means for students that they're also like missing out of a year of quality instruction because they're getting taught by a substitute who's supposed to be there, who should be there ideally just for a short term, one or two days, um, but ends up being there for and these quarters. Are, these the are time. substitutes in classes uh, in positions that could not be filled by the start of the school year or a teacher leaves in the middle of the school year? And Both and. I yeah. think that there are times where we just simply cannot fill a position. There are times when teachers leave and we don't have anyone to backfill that position. Um, and it does leave us in a spot where we need a substitute teacher. Uh, Bakari, you started to touch upon it, but for all three of you, I mean, how does a teacher shortage affect the lives and learning of your students? Well, we have had two long-term substitutes that were actually hired by the district in the last three years due to maternity leave and not being able to hire ahead of time. And I can tell you that the team dynamic is totally different with a long-term sub. Like within your group of teachers. Right, yeah, yeah. because like has been mentioned, they don't necessarily have the buy-in because they know that at the end of the year they're moving on. And so, you know, discipline <clears throat> or even just having those positive relationships and building a, a culture in the classroom is totally not their their priority. They are just there to make sure the kids are, you know, accounted for. They also don't have to worry about like planning they rely on the teacher who's they're subbing for to plan and then if that teacher you know who has a newborn can't get the plan together then it's kind of a free-for-all in the classroom and that affects the entire dynamic of not only the team of teachers but also the students because they can do what they can do one thing in this classroom where there's a long-term sub but then they're trying to be held accountable in these other classes and it's hard for them to, I mean, especially as sixth graders or seventh graders or eighth graders, hard for them to normalize that. Like, 
Make. And distinct, and sometimes students just don't know that this is like a long-term sub. They just know that an adult's there. Right. And they're supposed to represent the role of a teacher. And so that inconsistency in um, reinforcing the expectation of the building can definitely play on the culture and climate of a building. I would also add from my setting is that when we have students who are already coming in several years behind grade level and then they uh, walk into a classroom with a long-term sub, that's another year of quality instruction they're missing out on. So that just compounds um, the fact that they're going to continue to be behind in that particular subject. And so it definitely plays a, a significant role. And not that I think we're bashing substitutes. Substitutes no. play a very critical role <laughs> in education. Um, but we also know that it's very important to have those qualified teachers of record um, in front of students as, as many days as possible throughout the school year. Yeah, well, uh, that leads my, uh, to a question I did want to ask. So this report uh, from the Economic Policy Institute, one of its main points, maybe where you would say it, it breaks a little bit of new ground in terms of talking about teacher shortages, because, again, we've talked about teacher shortages for, for decades um, but this report makes the point that uh, teacher shortages are even concentrations of underqualified teachers, uh, teachers who are in the class, teachers who do have certification but may have come through alternative means or maybe are just less experienced, that those shortages disproportionately affect low-income schools and districts and schools that often serve high percentages of students of color. Uh, how have you found that to be the case where you teach? Are there concentrations of shortages in your districts or in your schools um, that affects certain groups of kids. Absolutely. You end up, and it predicated on a couple things, you you have those areas of specialization that you mentioned earlier, sciences, maths, mm-hmm. special education, um, bilingual education, a lot of the languages, those, those very specific areas, it, you really struggle to find a qualified, experienced teacher to do that. Um, all of that said, sometimes just finding a sub is difficult, and so yeah. that's mm-hmm. going to that more often than not, when when you're looking at, at districts that have subfill rates around the eighty percent mark, that still means you're splitting classes, you're spreading kids around, you're pulling instructors from other areas. So you've got a building without a librarian or a counselor for the day because they're covering other spaces. Um, so that impacts the instruction the kids are getting, and and you do end up when you're able to to latch on to an ed student that's just out of college. Sometimes you can get them in December after they've done their their internships, sometimes after they've done their student teaching, if you can get them, they are still learning the profession. Um, So they may have a degree or an expertise in the content, but the actual act of teaching still hasn't hasn't happened for them yet. And so you've got to have things in place, the mentorship, the one-on-one, you know, to develop those relationships for teachers um, that require time and investment that often doesn't come with that churn that happens, the in and the out. Would you characterize this as a crisis, the, the, the shortage of teachers, where y- in your experience, is it a crisis? I think it's looking different now as the old person at the table, <laughs> as the veteran at the table. Um, after 30 years in, in the classroom, um, we're now more greener, more greener. We are now greener and grayer than we have ever been before. Say more, what, what do you mean So by we that? are greener in that we have so many new very good people entering the profession, but yet need time to get better at it. And we have a very graying population, that bubble that moved through during the Great Recession that didn't leave, that are about to leave. Yeah. So I think we are facing a different kind of crisis um, than we have been because we've always had shortages, particularly because the shortages we know are happening in the high-risk populations. The high-poverty schools, both urban and even rural, our rural populations are struggling to staff their schools. Um, And because that's where the majority of the churn and the turnover are happening, 
um, and we all work in those schools, yes. um, you know, that's that's going to look different for our city schools, for our rural schools than it will for our suburban schools. Uh, there was a report issued by the Learning Policy Institute in 2016 that kind of serves as a, a benchmark of sorts for a lot of discussions about the current teacher shortage, some of the numbers that they compiled back then. And that report said that really since the Great Recession of 2008, districts have found it increasingly more difficult to find qualified applicants to fill positions that the teacher shortage has really become more acute over the past decade. Um, and maybe, Rebecca, you even alluded to this earlier. Many states in response have expanded alternative certification and emergency permitting so schools can hire more people, often more people who do not have the types of training that teachers did in the past in order to meet these gaps, these shortages. Have you noticed a change in who is coming into the profession uh, in recent years? Are you getting more alternatively certified teachers? And is that a good or bad thing? Well, I kind of want to speak on the um, education prep like preparation. I did graduate from a college where there was a fifth year. And so you had four years of concentration on your content. And then you had a fifth year where you worked on graduate level credits and internships. And that has changed in the university that I took these colleges. Since you graduated. Yeah, yeah. since I, so it's now shortened to a four-year program. And so speaking on the preparation it's not just the, the students that are graduating. It's the programs that have changed, too. They're not as prepared when they enter this world as they were even when I graduated, which I actually graduated in 07. So it was just before that recession. And as soon as the program has changed, I feel like the teachers aren't getting a realistic view of what to expect. Because they don't have that last year to... To yeah, be in a classroom to kind of get some professional practicum before. Yeah. So in the fall, I had eight weeks, and in the spring, I had 12. Now they're doing one or two hours in the spring for their practicum, and it's just mind-blowing because I've actually we received an email asking if we wanted to have a student teacher, but it's not really a student teacher anymore. They come, you know, for the first couple hours a day because they have afternoon classes for college. And why was that? Do you know why that switch was made? Is it because there's there's a premium being placed on just trying to get teachers out of the system and into or out of the, the program and into the education system because there are gaps? Possibly that and funding, like yeah. money. <laughs> it's hard to fund that fifth year yeah. as well as it's hard for universities to staff enough professors, professors mm -hmm. to be able to monitor those practicums because they have to have staff in to mm -hmm. be sure that they're, they're being overseen as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I definitely think that um, I've seen an increase in alternative ed certified um, staff members. I mean, I'm alternatively certified um, through Teach for America. I came into the education profession through Teach for America, got my alternative certification. Um, and I feel like there there's pros and cons to every um, pathway into education. I think it's all about what that educator does when they get to that classroom, um, ultimately, and the types of supports that buildings have in place to ensure that all teachers can be as effective as possible for their students um, in that building. I think that any educator who comes to the classroom, I I give them this, I assume that they're passionate about students and passionate about the work that they're getting ready to embark on. It, to me, it boils down to how we are supporting those educators and being effective for 
their students, um, regardless of their pathway into education. I don't think anyone goes into the classroom with the hopes of not doing what's best for kids. So it's just about how are we supporting them to do that. And I think when I think about the teacher shortage, that's where we really need to uh, put more investment into that retention piece, that if we kept teachers in the classroom longer than three to five years, that 50 percent of teachers actually leave um, after, then we would see a, a much more... Um, solid teaching workforce um, than what we're seeing right now. But because we have such a high turnover, because they're not being retained, because they're not in buildings that are being that they're being supported effectively, they're not getting coached, they're not getting um, additional assistance and resources to, to make sure that their job is being done effectively. And, and in a way that is fulfilling, they leave to go find other work or to go to other districts that are providing better resources and supports for their teaching staff. And so I think if we have a more of a conversation around how do we do a better job of retaining those people, those teachers who are entering the classroom, then we'll see a much uh, a shift in this uh, conversation around shortage. And I will get back to that Learning Policy Institute study from 2016. The authors of that report project that by 2020 and beyond, uh, this national teacher shortage as close as you can estimate it, I guess, will reach 300,000 or more. Um, so it's just going to keep growing. In other words, um, will the education system simply adapt to a dwindling number of teachers? Um, or will there, will there be some... Is there any hope that there's like bigger, bigger, broader national policy shifts? Oh, there's that absolutely could... hope. And there's, and there's absolutely hope. And there are policies that are very easily put in place to incentivize people coming back. There was a terrific... Very easily? Not very easily. <laughs> they they seem very obvious to me sitting here at the table on a Sunday afternoon. Um, you know, the the incentives that we can put in place for education students, you know, the fundamentally, no, you're looking at a really hard profession where your career earnings are going to top out after 15 years and you have to be in it for something different than, um, you know, your compensation. So you have to bring more and more people in different in more and more different ways um, to experience that. But... Student loan forgiveness, housing requirements, all of all of those policies that we have had before that worked that we could bring back, um, you know, teacher job protections and bargaining and compensation packages that make it an attractive profession for someone over the long term. Um, I think we'll have to come back to the table and, and I think we'll we'll approach a point when that does. Well, that, that, is a fun, that, that is a fundamental tension, right? Because you need more people, but you you want more than just warm bodies. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, there, there's a definite standard that you want. And like, for all the schools you're working in with the kids that you have, I'm sure you want people in front of them who are not only want to be there, but also are you know willing to learn and, and qualified and, and, and um, determined to, to improve in their profession. You don't just want someone. <laughs> We, we know that doesn't work. And Bakari said it best when he said you go in and assuming that that person is there to do a good job. Mm-hmm. And you have to assume that, that positive intent. And would you take a teacher shortage over having someone who is bad? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <course>. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Having no one is, is better than having the, uh, the, the wrong, wrong one. one. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Is it dangerous to be a boy? An op-ed recently published by the New York Times by author and psychologist Michael Reichert argues 
Yes, it too often is. He points out research that shows boys are more likely to get in physical fights than girls, more likely to have been the victim of violence and bullying than girls. Boys are more likely to use tobacco, engage in riskier behavior. About 75% of deaths for 15 to 24-year-olds are male. Recent surveys show a large majority of boys say they feel pressure to act and appear physically strong, and about half say they would be willing to punch someone if provoked. All this can lead to a toxic cycle. Reichert points out boys who ascribe to more traditional gendered norms when they're young, like physical strength and emotional stoicism, are more likely to carry out acts of violence and sexual harassment as adults. As Reichert writes in the New York Times, quote, Boyhood immerses boys in violence. The problem is rooted in boys' socialization, which is characterized by physical discipline, control, and disdain for weakness, end quote. Do schools and, by extent, teachers have a role in trying to combat this socialization that Reichert describes? What are our teachers' takes on Riker's argument. Um, let me just start with the premise of what Reichert wrote. In your experience as teachers, is youth and adolescence indeed more dangerous for boys than girls? At least in my experience, um, I, it's always been researched that girls have a different kind of bullying. It's more social, emotional than physical. Still hurtful. Sure, absolutely. Yes. Still not a good thing, but... You know, it's also always been said that if boys have a problem with each other, they'll fight it out and then they'll be fine. So, I, I mean, that's all stereotypical. Mm-hmm. Just in my classroom experience, the boys are very handsy, like, you know, like just shoving one another or and it's it seems playful. But it, I think I can see how that would promote like, you know, violence because they go back and forth and each push or each slap intensifies and you know you have to be you have to go one more than the other and um it, it i see that just with my observation mostly in boys have you ever seen it escalate to the i mean have you ever experienced an actual true um act of violence um among your students or on campus um well i did have to send a student to the office for punching another kid just in the last month, actually. Uh, I was provoked. That doesn't make it right. But one student was saw that the other had a phone and was pointing it out and, like, kind of grabbed the kid's hoodie where the phone was. And the other student wailed on him, like, six or seven punches. Um, and so that had to be dealt with immediately. But uh, And they're not friends, so it wasn't friendly. That was not a friendly encounter. But as far as I, that, w- to me, is as violent as it gets in my, in my building. In your middle school, we should, yeah. Yeah, we should remind yeah. you. Uh, Rebecca uh, Bakari, uh, is life more dangerous for boys than girls, in your opinion? I think it is. And I think the schools are responsible for some of that because we buy into the, the, the air quotes here, the boy code. I th- and I think the research will back me up on it. Uh, my what do you boys, mean by that? Yeah. My boys of color are more at risk, both from adult treatment and student-on-student student treatment. Um, my marginalized groups, mm-hmm. my LGBTQ kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think the public schools, and, and I'll include myself in that, we give the girls more chances. We give them the benefit of the doubt. We give them more flexibility. Um, and we, we lock our boys into this masculinity 
that's associated. I, I wrote down what you said when you said emotional stoicism. I'm going to remember that one. Um, I think we do. And I think we have the research. But I had to smile as Jamie was talking. Um, I work in an alternative setting with boys who have not been successful. And I say boys because it's the majority of who I have in my program um, who have not been successful in a traditional setting. They react physically. I, we deal with physical encounters every day, multiple times a day. Um, and until we know better how to help them, um, you know, break that cycle, I think we are absolutely responsible for setting them up in the way that we do. I do want to get back to that, but first here from mm-hmm. Bakari, what do you think? I'm not really sure. I think that part of it, on, on one front, yes, I definitely think there is this socialization around um, masculinity and boyhood and just manhood um, that does play into a lot more prevalence of violence and physical aggression um, that I think cannot be denied. I don't know if I would go so far as to say, though, that boys are in more danger than girls. I think something about that statement just makes me feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. um, and agreeing with. And I don't don't think I agree with that at all. I think that I agree with Rebecca's point that I think that oftentimes our most marginalized and oppressed communities of boys tend to be over-criminalized in the education system. And I think that to that extent, I definitely think education ha- our educators have a role in shifting that tide. But I think as a society, we have um, conditioned ourselves around these gender norms that often allow for boys to behave in certain kind of ways and, and promote boys behaving in certain type of ways that lead to these type of the data that we see. Um, and so I guess for me, it's almost like I don't I, I don't necessarily feel like it, it's a danger. It's more of a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will, of like this is what we're conditioning boys to do and be. And this is who they're this is what they're doing and being. Um, I, I think that the danger that does exist there is if we don't stop and check ourselves around just like the gendered norms that we have in society. And, and I think as educators, that's where our role, we have, a, a, I think, a, a responsibility to take a step back and to really push the thinking and the critical thinking around our students and our colleagues and ourselves as to how we continue to perpetuate these the these things that we're doing and the norms in which we buy into, even though we know that we have data that says this is counterproductive to the types of society, to the, to the type of society that we actually want to live in. Uh, the bullying, the ganging up on seemingly weaker individuals, um, the bravado, the taunting that Reichert describes or at least alludes to in his op-ed, do you see that type of behavior in your boys? I see that in both boys and girls. Like, I think, and particularly in middle school, like that is the nature <laughs> of, unfortunately, <laughs> when kids are trying to find their, their themselves and find their crews and find their cliques, like that's what happens. They, they identify the quote-unquote weaker links and attack them in various ways. Um, but I, I see that I see the same type of aggression. I see the same type of animosity and tension between my girls as I do with our boys. Just not so much the physical violence. No, I there is. I would say for my for my context, it is very much uh, a balanced <laughs> approach. And sometimes <laughs> I'm I'm actually I think that I would I would I, I actually argue that my girls are a bit more physically aggressive hmm. than my boys. And I think maybe because I I also work with predominantly black and brown children, and so I think that our boys have been conditioned 
and are being taught that you are already looked at as a criminal. And so you mm-hmm. can't afford you don't have that same luxury of getting into a fight and, and it being OK as um, your white classmates. So you're so. saying that are you saying that you, your boys are more selective about how they use their physical aggression? I, I would say so. I know even in the conversation I have with my boys, like I, that's a very real conversation I have. Like you cannot afford to do this because this is what's going to happen to mm-hmm. you. Like this is and I know that I mean, it goes back to the t- type of conversations that black parents have to have with their black boys around how they engage with police officers. Like there are just certain luxuries and privileges that we don't have. And so that we're engaging in conversation around monitoring our behavior a lot more than I think other communities have to. Uh, Rebecca, you mentioned earlier uh, you do feel like schools have played a role in socializing um, uh, boys, or I mean boys and girls, in terms of physical aggression, violence, um, uh, trying to be stronger than someone else, um, and maybe honing in on others' individual weaknesses. Um, How so? Uh, What are schools doing wrong Um, I don't think we name the emotions that kids are having very well. I think we have to allow kids the space to to name and process those feelings when they have anger, when they have disappointment, when they have depression. Um, And I think I've... We've socialized ourselves to give girls a little bit more space on that Mm -hmm. than we have with our boys. Um, How might that play? I mean, can you give me an example of how that might play out? To be able to say this, this girl is upset... We'll process with her in a different way than if I see one of my male students is upset or visibly escalated. I, I think we don't help each other help kids identify that. Um, so I, I think one of the first things we have to do and that I try to do in my classroom with, with my boys is to, to talk – to give them the vocabulary. What are you feeling? What does this feel like? It's okay to feel that way. Um, it's not okay to act that way. Um, what is – you know, to give it a name, to talk about how to process those emotions – um, and and then how to ask for help dealing with that. I think we're quick to allow the girls to have some help. Let's find you a friend. Let's find you a counselor to talk to. Let's let's make, give you some downtime if you need a safe space. Um, whereas we're quick to remediate the boys, get over it quick, and get back in the in the in the routine. Um, I don't know. I while I agree that I think that mm-hmm. that, that definitely happens in schools. I, school is not the only place that it happens, and so I, I think that that's where I struggle with like what's wrong with schools like that's what's mm-hmm. wrong with society that yes. that we are a reflection of the greater um actions and norms of society in, in our school buildings and so i do think that we do have a responsibility to again take that step back and and really analyze how we are perpetuating these these ills and these norms but i wouldn't blame schools for and when no. i and when i hear what schools are doing wrong almost like the blame is being placed on schools well uh, uh reichert Going, getting back to what he wrote, he doesn't really put an onus on schools. His op-ed, in fact, points out that parents are often the source of um, these possibly misguided perceptions about what it means to be a man. That was the focus of his op-ed. Um, so do you see that in your parents? Do fathers or mothers, uh, you know, tell their, uh, for instance, tell their boys to be a man or get tough um, or that kind of thing? They're being socialized outside of school. Well, so since I'm mostly rural and mostly white, like where I teach, um, I definitely see um, homes divided, single parents, step parents, you know, all affecting the way this child is coming to school. And it's definitely, because it's rural, it definitely does have that feel of step up, be a man. If someone swings at you, swing back type of feeling. Because we're, But we're a small district, and that's just the way the parents 
have raised their kids, uh, unfortunately. And so that's why I feel like I, I see more violence in my, um, my low SES males, and that doesn't matter what color they are, than I do in my females. Is it, so then is it a, a school's or a teacher's place to um, intervene um, when you, you see or suspect that type of parenting or familial dynamic going on? Well, one thing that Kansas is really focused on in the in, um, accreditation side is focusing on that social emotional learning. So we're trying to institute new programs. Um, our counseling program just got a grant for a teacher fellows to focus on a more whole child route of talking about those feelings, letting letting them know that it's okay to feel this way and let's talk about it instead of going to the punitive side of things. So we're really trying to approach the student as a whole person even more, especially with the social-emotional side, than saying, you just flipped a chair. I'm not even going to care about why you flipped that chair. You get the punishment and just go away. You know, we have to talk to the the student, no matter what gender, and figure out what the problem is, the underlying problem. You know, how can we approach them as a person mm-hmm. and not just a kid in our room that's a problem? And I think that's, that gets more toward that solution of, like, when we start to honor the humanity of each individual child and not just, like, categorize them as a child so you can need to bottle it up and get over it because it doesn't meet the needs of me as an adult in this moment, I think that's where we start to see a lot of these genderized norms, whereas Rebecca was saying that we often take that moment with our girls that we don't take with our boys. But if we look at it as an approach of just respecting the humanity of all of our students, which affords them the opportunity to experience the range of emotions that a, a child feels and not always have the words to articulate, I think that's where I really push, like I struggle with in education, is that we don't always take those moments to prioritize the needs of our kids, emotional needs and, 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 and social concerns, um, because we are academically driven, which I think there I get on one hand, but at the same time, those academics don't get handled effectively um, if you're not addressing the social and emotional needs of our students. Uh, Rebecca, you said you worked in an alternative school. Do you ever have kids who get to a point where they are able to articulate um, I know these broader, like the idea of socialization. Like they, they absolutely, have, yeah. and we can we can see that with elementary kids, with our middle school kids, with our high school kids. You can equip, we can learn tools. You can learn coping mechanisms and strategies. Um, like what? Um, they can learn to breathe. They can learn to stop and think. They can learn to to walk away. They can learn to find a safe adult. They can learn to develop those relationships with peers. Um, given the time, given the training, given the support. The, and the repetitive and yep. the repetitive long term mm-hmm. kinds. Absolutely, we have those those successes every day. And I would say kids, that's yeah. that's where our role really lies is that teaching piece, like mm-hmm. those teachable moments. There, a kid who's long, no longer needs to flip over a chair because they can articulate, "I'm frustrated," because oftentimes mm-hmm. they just don't have the word choice necessary to articulate their their feelings. And it's not that I'm angry; I'm actually frustrated because I didn't understand the problem. And I I'm too embarrassed to ask for help, so I'm just going to flip over a chair. And avoid the whole situation. Whereas, if we get them to calm down and really get to the root and give help them find the language to articulate their emotions, we can better support them in, in getting through it. Go to the third topic. <laughs> Teachers are often told to avoid using sarcasm in class with students. Snark, we've been trained to think, can be demeaning, 
confusing. It has the potential to damage relationships and disrupt class. And there are a lot of teachers, including myself, who have stories of when sarcasm in class went very, very wrong. But a new and interesting research paper published in the Journal for Adolescent and Adult Literacy argues that, in fact, when used correctly, sarcasm can be a good thing, not only for the classroom environment, but also for learning. The author of this study spent a year and a half observing a co-teaching team of two teachers in an English classroom in what her final paper describes as an urban high school in upstate New York, Rochester to be exact, and she concludes that the teacher's frequent and purposeful use of sarcasm both fostered students' critical language awareness and thinking ability and created positive relationships among students and teachers. And I didn't read any of that sarcastically. That was all genuine. (laughs) So can sarcasm work? Now, uh, just a little bit more about this study. The author makes clear um, the effective sarcasm that she observed was rarely mean or biting, used in a context, say, to punish a student. That's not what That's not the type of sarcasm we're talking about, but was more of the corny, playful variety. One of the teachers who was the focus of this study is called Tim. And around his school, he's known as kind of a quirky guy with uh, what the author calls an acerbic personality. He has one-liners and zingers he uses repeatedly in class phrases like, I'm so down in the hood, I'm in the sleeve, or I'm so corny, I'm on the cob. If it's not clear, this teacher is white and a dad. Um, But... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The bigger point being that uh, the type of sarcasm or ironic speech, as the author of the study calls it, actually um, got students to stop, think, um, made them analyze language critically because what they were being told was not literally true. Um, Anyway, uh, so all that being said, uh, do you deploy a type of sarcasm in your class? Are you sarcastic? I don't know how to not be sarcastic. (laughs) Rebecca, think, Rebecca looks at me witheringly. I, I'm, you know, the use, the effective use of a good pun at the right time is all the tools you need. I mean, I think it, it, you said the critical word is context. You have to identify it. It has to be in the correct context. But kids know immediately if you're not authentic and it's if it's part of who you are. If you are a sarcastic person, you're you, saying that that's... If you are just inherently funny and witty and make the good dad pun, you you can't resist. You have to. It 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 does so much more good. It done correctly. I've got to go back to context. You have to identify it. Um, but it makes you authentic with your classroom. It's who you are. The kids identify it. Um, they're growing up in a world of sar- sarcasm. They understand it. They use it. I, I just think it, it adds a layer of relationship to kids that they, you know, whether or not they like my jokes or not, they know they're going to get them. Yeah, I definitely think that there is an appropriate time when to use it and when not to use it. And I think that when we hear that teachers should not use it, it's often the ones that we're saying, like, not in punishment, not in ridicule of a student, and those sort of things. And that's when it goes wrong oftentimes. Um, I think there are some times where you can, like, redirect a kid with sarcasm. Um, when they're making a poor choice, but that really requires having a, a positive relationship already established with that kid. That's not how you build the positive relationship with the kid. <laughs> and I think that that's where the gap often is, is that inexperienced teachers or teachers inexperienced with leveraging sarcasm in their classroom will do it in a way that is ridiculing, is uh, belittling to students in a way that they don't have a relationship to engage with that kid um, with, and it blows up. I think I find myself sometimes having to, as an administrator, interpret the sarcasm of other of other teachers when it mm-hmm. becomes a discipline issue. Um, for example, I had a teacher kid brings some um, food to class, some like cereal bar or something, and a teacher tells him, "If you don't have enough for everyone else, put it away." 
Well, that day he happened to have enough for everyone else, so he starts <laughs> passing it out, <laughs> which I thought was absolutely hilarious. But at the same time, obviously the teacher didn't literally mean pass it out; like they they meant put it away because you shouldn't have it anyway. Um, but like he took it very literally, like I have enough, so I'm going to pass it out, <laughs> and that, and so it created an opportunity, a learning opportunity for the kid. Like, no, that's what we call sarcasm. No, she. And that reminds me of uh, they always um, when you're a new teacher, they always. Tell you never say, "Do I look like an idiot?" <laughs> You'll get an answer. You will yeah. every time. Mm-hmm. Every time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this study concludes in part um, with one of their last lines. The authors says, and I'll quote: "We are not suggesting that all teachers should start being sarcastic in their classrooms. We are suggesting that a purposeful and reflective use of sarcasm and humor can support learning complex language." Um, are you going to be more reflectively sarcastic now in your in your jobs? Mm-hmm. I think I'll probably maintain my level. (laughs) I think it's too late for this one. The ship has sailed. They can like my jokes or not like my jokes. They're going to get them anyway. All right. Well, before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. School districts in Minnesota will not have to make up snow days after the state's governor recently signed into law the Snow Day Relief Act. Minnesota mandates schools normally be in session at least 165 days a year, but a relentless winter this school year has forced districts to cancel an abnormally large number of school days, even for Minnesota. The new law absolves districts from making those days up for students and teachers, but does require districts to find ways to make up the lost time for hourly employees like custodians. Puerto Rico's recently departed top education official is defending her tenure amid an ongoing investigation of the department she once led. Julia Kelleher clashed with teachers' unions and families in the catastrophic aftermath of Hurricane Maria in 2017 as she moved to close hundreds of schools and open the island's first charter schools. In a speech at Yale recently after she stepped down, Kelleher said, Somebody had to be the adult in the room. There is currently a federal investigation into some contracts. The Puerto Rican Education Department signed following Maria. And enrollment in non-charter public schools fell slightly this year in California, corresponding with an uptick in charter school enrollment. Students in charter schools in California now make up nearly 11 percent of the more than 6 million students in the state. Meanwhile, the number of Hispanic students in California continues to rise. They now make up nearly 55 percent of all K-12 public school students in the largest state population-wise in the country. Those are some of the other education stories that caught our eye recently. Coming up, kids these days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard here, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days. Jamie, what are your kids into? The final countdown. Already? 28 days. Oh. I guess it is getting that wow. close, isn't it? Yeah. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Twenty-eight school days school left. School days. Yeah. It's the final wow. countdown. Yeah. Um, Rebecca every day. and Bakari look very <laughs> jealous. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, we first Minnesota and now Jamie. <laughs> well, so let me just talk on that in a minute. But yeah, I have a student who tells me every day, "We have this many days left, Ms. Myers. We have this many days. Before it was this many days till track." So you didn't get any snow days. Oh no, we're making up the time. Oh. 
I have 15 minutes extra every day. Okay. Yeah, you said that before. You said that before. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. And we also lost an early release day, which is an in-service day. We have full contact that day. So, and we added one day after graduation. So we've made up our time. (laughs) But it shocked me that Minnesota only has to go to school for 165 days. Mm -hmm. Because we're 180. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, final countdown. We're on the home stretch. So. Wow. Yeah. It's coming down. It is. It's coming. Needs to. <laughs> sorry, guys. I can't Rebecca, even look Rebecca. at you. I'm sorry. I'm turning my head. <laughs> I, it's way too early to be thinking that way for us. Well, it's I'm like It's not. barely April. The kids. It's, he said kids these days. That's I have true. kids who tell me the camera. Good for you. Well done. <laughs> well done. Rebecca, what are your kids well, into? Well, you know, you mentioned Mr. Palmer. It is spring is finally here. It's 75 degrees outside. That means... Kids are out. The mm-hmm. hoverboards are out. The bikes are out. My kids are skinned up from elbows to knees all over. Um, sports practices have started. Everybody's going to sports, so be nice to those parents who aren't getting home at a decent hour. You still hour. have kids using hoverboards? Aren't those things like banned? Actually, more than ever. Really? I've got more on boards than I do on bikes. We've talked about that in class. Not a lot are of they, bike Are riders, they any better at riding them? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no. It's so dangerous. They come in skinned from top to tail. Um, and it's prom season. So for the older students, you guys be watching for the prom activities. That has turned into a major industry. And it is prom happening puzzles. right now. Wow. It's spring. Where's this year going? It's spring. Well, we're going to go <laughs> till the end of our lives. Our end is not nearly in sight. But all of the spring things are happening for littles and for bigs. Bakari, what are your kids into? My kids are into slinkies right now. Really? Um, I know. It's very surprising. 25 years late, but that's okay. Well, it's kind of because of me, though. Because I carry a slinky at school, and like I use it as just, like my stress reliever as I'm walking in the hall and playing with my slinky. And so now I've started to see kids come with slinkies to school and like always asking me to bring, can they use my slinky, that sort of thing. So I have a lot of kids into slinkies. Wow, you are a, You're a trendsetter. Slinky proselytizer. <laughs> so what do you do when you walk around the hall? You just kind of like... I'm just playing with my slinky. Rolling it between hands. Mm-hmm. and I support the, that. Kids need to know about the slinkies. The classic silver one? The classic yep, metal one? Yeah, I have one. the metal one. Okay. Yep. That's the wow. only kind slinky, of slinky. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Jamie Myers, Rebecca McIntosh, and Bakari Uku'u. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, spring has sprung, so definitely be nice to your teachers.